and welcome everyone, wherever you are, to today's conversation, which is titled 21st Century Technologies for Tackling 21st Century Pandemics. Thanks for joining us. This event is part of a series of talks organised by the Oxford Martin School called Building Back Better, Lessons and Opportunities from the COVID-19 Pandemic. My name is Oliver Pybus. I'm Professor of Evolution and Infectious Disease at the Department of Zoology at Oxford University. And I'm also a co-director of the Oxford Martin School programme on pandemic genomics. I am absolutely delighted to be joined in conversation today by Professor Christoph Fraser. Uh, Christoph is Professor of Infectious Disease Dynamics at the Nuffield Department of Medicine, and he's a senior group leader in pathogen dynamics at Oxford University's Big Data Institute. Uh, Christoph is a world-leading expert in infectious disease epidemiology, in the mathematical modeling of epidemics, and in pathogen genomics. He originally trained in physics before turning to mathematical biology after his PhD. And before joining the Big Data Institute at Oxford in 2016, he was a professor of epidemiology at Imperial College London. Now, Christoph has applied his expertise uh, to numerous epidemics, including the H1N1 pandemic influenza in 2009 and the West Africa Ebola virus epidemic in 2014 to 2016. In more recent years, his team has particularly focused on HIV in Africa and Europe. This year, Christoph and his team uh, published the first paper that suggested an important role for contact tracing smartphone apps in controlling the COVID-19 pandemic. And he has provided scientific advice to the NHS and Google to support their development of smartphone contact tracing apps. So before I begin our conversation proper, I have two administrative announcements to make uh, for all uh, watchers and listeners. Firstly, uh, there'll be a question and answer session after our conversation. And if you'd like to ask a question, uh, you need to be watching via Crowdcast. Uh, if you click on the ask a question button, uh, and that's towards the bottom right-hand side of your screen, you'll be able to add a question there. If you're watching on YouTube, I don't believe there's any way that you're able to feed in a question, but I hope you enjoy the conversation nonetheless. And secondly, uh, if you do ask a question, please be aware that this uh, event is being recorded and live streamed. Okay, with uh, the introductions out of the way, um, let's uh, begin our conversation. And, and of course, the, the, the pandemic needs no introduction, and it's become a defining event of the 20th, uh, 21st century. Um, we've been in a, a race with a marathon now, uh, with the virus all year, trying to trace and prevent transmissions faster than they occur. Some countries and, and regions have, have managed to get ahead of the virus, uh, whilst others have, have uh, struggled to keep up. Uh, and today we'll be discussing whether uh, new and modern technologies can provide uh, alternate ways to understand virus transmission and, and, and to get ahead of 
the virus and control vi uh, epidemic spread. So what are the opportunities and challenges in applying new technologies such as smartphone apps or pandemic uh, uh, pathogen genome sequencing? And can we uh, deploy these tools fast enough to make a, a real difference to public health? Um, so to set the scene to begin with, I think it'd be good to talk about the history of the study of transmission as a scientific pursuit. So before the current pandemic, how did we go about uh, understanding where transmission occurred and how it occurred and using that information to um, control spread? And th there's a number of linked terms here that I think might be useful to introduce, such as the the difference between contact tracing and outbreak investigation. So what, what do you think the defining events were in the history of the, the, the study of transmission, Christoph? Well, so the most famous uh, outbreak investigation that, that everybody studies in, in introductions to, to, to epidemiology is, is, is John Snow in, in London, in Soho, who is investigating a cholera uh, epidemic um, you know, a raging cholera epidemic, and he um, collects data himself around uh, uh, to find out the, the the source where people were 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 getting um, sick from, and what he found by mapping them out uh, and sort of produces very beautiful map of of time and space, um, showing the cases. So the cases were were very clustered around a single. Um, uh, uh, drinking uh, water pump, the, the Broad Street pump, and he also found that there was a few unlinked cases. But when he went to interview people, um, he found, you know, that the the the, the cases that were far away, uh, people were actually coming to Broad Street pump because because that's where they they um, liked the water from. So so that was a classic outbreak investigation where you you ask a number of people who are suffering from a disease. Um, you know, a, a questionnaire, and you look for a common denominator, and that common denominator points to, to, to being the source. So, so that's kind of outbreak investigation, which identifies a common source, which is, you know, a closed space and time where people have been exposed to infection uh, 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 and uh, acquired infection. And Wade Hampton Frost, who is sort of one of the, the later founders of, of and the study of epidemiology, and uh, who was the head of the U.S. Public Health Service in the 1918 pandemic of, you know, the famous Spanish flu pandemic, he he had systematized uh, John Snow's approach. So so he would travel around the U.S. sort of investigating water-borne um, diseases, and he would produce these maps, and he would invariably uh, find find the source. Now contact tracing. Is is a little bit different. It's sort of you know, um, and it, the the early days of this, would, it was done a lot for for tuberculosis, and it was done you know for for for, for cholera in households, and it was done um, actually. Wade Hampton Frost did it in the nineteen eighteen flu. You know, you go around and you look at the cases. You typically see clustering of cases in in households, um, and and basically the point of that is that if it's people who are in close contact for a period of time, you might not be able to um, attribute it to, to a particular place, and it might only be a small number of cases. So contact tracing is about mapping out the, the, the contact events that link people 
um, and, and to break the transmission chains, typically by, by quarantining, uh, quarantining people at home. But they kind of link together, because if you imagine, you know, um, 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 and we saw this a lot in Ebola, we saw this in the SARS epidemic, if you imagine a, a, super, a super spreader event, a super spreader event is kind of where contact tracing meets outbreak analysis. That's a single person at a single place. You know, it can be in a food market, it can be in a church, uh, it can be in a, in a concert, somewhere where people aggregate and where, where essentially uh, um, a lot of people came into contact with a single person causing, causing an outbreak. So in, in all cases, it's about finding the source case and using that to, to contain the infection while disrupting as few people as possible in the process. So, so in the case of, of the famous cholera outbreak that John Snow investigated, there was a fairly direct public health intervention that, yeah. that came from uh, his, his uh, identifying the outbreak. Which Yeah, no, he removed the Broad Street pump so that people could, could, can drink the water and, and people still look at the time series. And, you know, just as, just as we see now, people argue whether it was actually already going down before, before he asked the pump. But, yeah, you... You, he, that was an ongoing exposure in a place, and you 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 close the broad stream pump, and and the direct analog of that was if you look back at the the start of this year, the the exposure in the in the food market, seafood market in Wuhan, which was the first time that we heard about COVID. It's, it's not where we think COVID started. We think it probably, I mean, you know, you can comment more on 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 the origins from your from your own work, but, but we think it started a, a few weeks before. But in the, in the seafood market, it was a very similar uh, situation to, to John Snow's Broad Street Pump, is, you know, people were coming to, to the market, um, had, these, had these strange symptoms that were showing up in hospital, and similarly, people went through the questionnaires, and what did they have in common? They all went shopping at this, at this seafood market, and the first intervention was closing the seafood market, and then of course now you know we have lots of molecular tools which were able to say this was a this was a new virus, and and people were being exposed by contaminated surfaces in that seafood market. So directly, it's exactly the same approach that John Snow took. So, so it sounds it sounds from what you were saying earlier, there's this sort of continuum, uh, and both mm -hmm. contact tracing and outbreak investigation lie on this continuum. Um, for some pathogens are they better controlled with outbreak investigation or are other pathogens better controlled through contact tracing and, and are there are characteristics of pathogens that make them better controlled by uh, either of those two uh, options yeah so i think there are two two really important characteristics which determine um you know whether you want to focus the contact tracing, you're really looking at the person and the outbreak investigation, you're looking at the source, which might be a person at a certain point in time. But it, it really depends on the, the route of transmission and the extent to which you have uh, super spreading. So if you imagine, uh, if you look at, 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 to some extent, all pathogens have super spreading, but some more so than others. So, so if you look at, at flu transmission, um, the, um, some people, in fact, uh, are more likely to infect um, uh, uh, others. Some people are more infectious than others, but it's, it's, it's not massively heterogeneous. It, I mean, we characterize this in, um, in, in earlier works, even going back to, to some of the data from 1918, and it, 
we see a very consistent message that it's sort of um, it's it's close proximity contacts um, predominantly um, through through uh, droplets and aerosols uh, and predominantly through 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 children at schools um, uh, and then children when they come home but the that you don't see these really large outbreaks now you see at the other end of the spectrum SARS uh, is somewhere in between if you if you look back to, to SARS in 2003 it kind of causes really big outbreaks there was a big outbreak in a hotel in Hong Kong you know a um, couple of hospitals had outbreaks involving 200 people that that were you know at, at a single point in time there was a block of flats that were contaminated and so that's that sort of um, you know where you want to be doing both contact tracing and outbreak investigation and then you look at sort of the environmental sources of, of cholera. So, for example, there was a really big outbreak of, of cholera in Haiti recently after the earthquake. And, and there it was really um, uh, linking it back to a contamination, to a, to a source of contamination. So, so probably, you know, um, something like flu or maybe HIV, um, you're not going to, to, to look for, for, for places and sources. Uh, you're going to focus on the people, uh, COVID and SARS somewhere in the middle, and 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 cholera probably is is you really focus on the environmental sources. Super, I think both of these are uh, what we might call traditional shoe leather epidemiological uh, methods, or, or or shoe leather and uh, clipboard uh, approaches. Um, but as as I alluded to at the beginning, this idea of a race between between tracking transmission and the virus creating new infections, um, that approach of, of contact tracing doesn't scale particularly well once we get to tens or hundreds of thousands of new infections every week. Um, which brings us to our, our main theme, which is that uh, can technology help us uh, in this race? Um, and, uh, and the two technologies I think we're, we're going to mainly talk about today are um, using uh, smartphones uh, to help uh, notify people of their, of their risk of infection and using uh, genomics to look at uh, the genomes of viruses and pathogens to understand how they have been spreading in the past. Um, so let's, let's first have a... Uh, talk about those two new technologies. They might not be familiar to everyone listening and explain briefly how they work. So should we start with, with the smartphone apps? Okay, so well, there is, nowadays we have, we have smartphone uh, apps for, for, for everything, uh, but the smartphone contact tracing apps, uh, what they rely on is, is the technology um, uh, low energy Bluetooth uh, to measure the proximity uh, between phones. So if you, if you, um, uh, if two people who are carrying a smartphone uh, spend uh, a certain amount of time together, uh, there's an there's an exchange of, of Bluetooth signals, which is basically just a handshake. And this is this is a technology that's been there for a while. It's, for example, you know, when you use a Find My Phone function, you know, that's that's how your um, that's how your phone is is found through these sort of very energy efficient handshakes. And so what happens is, is um, you know, if, if we were meeting in person rather than, than virtually, 
uh, our, our phones would would exchange these handshakes, and based on the, the signal strength and so on, uh, and some other characteristics, you can you can work out the the distance. Uh, you can work out actually if our signal is being scrambled, you know, um, uh, like in a bus, for example. So so you can get a pretty good idea of of whether the the risk the event is something that could give rise to transmission. And then the nice thing is. Uh, that if, or the useful thing is that if two days later one of us tests positive for COVID, then the other one gets a notification. And that can be an entirely anonymous notification uh, that you've spent a certain amount of time uh, in, in, in close proximity with somebody who it now turns out, so, so it's sort of a window in the past, now turns out to be infected and you get that uh, instant notification. Um, and, and that gain in speed is, is absolutely critical because the, the issue um, which we saw with COVID really early on, uh, which, is, which is still really problematic, is, is that a lot of transmission occurs in people before they get characteristic uh, COVID symptoms. So by the time you're looking for contacts to break chains of transmission, um, you know, the, you're really in a race against time where on average you've got about two days between you know developing symptoms and the contact being notified, uh, and in you know that's an average of quite a wide distribution. Um, so yeah. So the the key benefits over shoe leather epidemiology are one speed of notification and two um, the the fact that this system will continue to work perfectly well um, depending on whether there's ten infections or or, or ten thousand. Uh, and it takes just as long, I assume, to, to notify uh, a thousand people that they might be in a, at risk as it does to just notify one person. Absolutely, yeah. So it's 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 instantaneous. Um, I mean, there's there's um, it's not quite instantaneous. So, for example, there are some uh, um, filters that are built in to make sure that the the system stays secure. You know that it that it can't be gamed. Uh, uh, on mass and so on, uh, which is really important, I think, with with digital technologies. But basically, it's it's um, it's very scalable. Uh, and the and, and if you start to imagine that coupled with these rapid point of care tests, which can now be manufactured antigen tests, uh, and in the future, you know, um, we could man manufacture antigen tests for for any uh, new antigens uh, uh, for, for for future pathogens. You could imagine getting tested, you know, getting a result within half an hour and then notifying contacts being notified uh, uh, later. But at, at this point in time, it sort of speeds the contact tracing process. It's also, it's also um, the, the other benefit is that it helps when, um, it, you know, you don't, you don't necessarily take down the name of everybody, um, uh, you know, if you spend some time at the pub or the restaurant, the person who was sitting behind you uh, closely in the in the adjacent table. Now, you know, we've seen through, through the pandemic that restaurants are, are supposed to take people's names. And in fact, you know, they then sell that, some of them sell that data to, to make money. So, so this is a, it's more, more privacy preserving and, uh, you know, it doesn't care whether you know the person um, uh, you, you had contact with or not. And is there a key threshold in terms of the number of people that need to be using it for it to be effective, or is there still benefit from it irrespective of, of the take-up? So there's benefit um, um, 
you know, as soon as you have one group of friends or a group of colleagues or a group of people, group of co-workers uh, who meet, there's there's a protective effect for for that um, sort of bubble of people. There's two ways of thinking about this. You can either think about it, you know, from the perspective of the the, the chief scientific advisor or the the minister of health, who thinks, what do I need to to protect, you know, the whole population? Uh, and uh, there is a protective effect there, probably. Uh, once you get past about 15% of the population who are users in the UK, we're sort of over 30%, something like 40% of adults. So we're well above that threshold. Um, but if you think about it as an individual user, the threshold is, you know, are the people you come into contact with also using the app? So, so really, it only depends on what's happening in your in your neighborhood in terms of that direct sort of uh, benefit. Okay, let's let's briefly introduce uh, the listeners to uh, pathogen genomics. And here, of course, we're talking about virus genomics. Uh, and, and this is a, a topic that both you and I have uh, spent a lot of time uh, researching. Um, so uh, some but not all of our listeners might know that uh, infectious microorganisms such as bacteria and viruses uh, undergo quite high rates of evolution, and that means that the the genome or the instruction set for that virus or, or bacteria is often slightly different uh, in each infected individual. Uh, and if you uh, use genomic technologies to read that uh, genome, you can observe these differences. And, and the interesting thing is that they the differences accumulate during the chain of transmission. So that uh, the, the pattern of shared differences amongst different infections reveals the history of, of transmission events as that uh, pathogen has been spreading. Um, now, that seems uh, a little bit remote, I guess, from the process of transmission. But, but does it contain information about transmission that the other sources of information that we've been talking about don't? Um, absolutely. So, so if you imagine, you know, the um, some person who's infected who you've sampled, being able to um, work out, so if you're investigating a cluster, for example, uh, you, you've got a cluster of cases in, in a hospital or a cluster of cases around a school or a cluster of cases has appeared, you know, around a care home, then being able to being able to say, are these infections actually linked? You know, is there a super spread event that's happened here? Is there something for me to understand? Um, or, or to actually being able to reject uh, transmission to actually say, well, you know, um, I've, uh, yes, there are a few cases here, but they don't seem related to each other. They just happen to have been at, at the same place at the same time. Um, you know, is is critical to to understanding that. And if you're going to if you're going to do something like and close a school or, or close a workplace, um, you know, and, and you want to do it quite early uh, on the basis of the first few cases you're seeing, because you, this is always about speed. So, you know, the metaphorical broad street pump, you want to save, prevent infections by re uh, removing it as quickly as, as possible. Um, so, so the quicker you get the information about whether you're really seeing a, a, a new outbreak and you um, the, the more effective your action is going to be. I mean, likewise, I don't know if you want to, you know, you did led a, 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 a study looking, 
instead of a school level, you looked at country level, you know, the, the number of introductions uh, into, into, the, into the UK, you know, how did, what did that tell us about the... Yeah, I, I think you're right that one of the, the key benefits of this data is the ability to determine the number of different chains of transmission uh, that are in a, a particular location. And, and this year, during the COVID pandemic in the UK, genome sequencing has been widely used across lots of settings and in hospitals, very important if there uh, is an outbreak occurring to determine whether this is just one outbreak or multiple. And in fact, it might be affecting different wards or different parts of the uh, hospital and do they need one out, uh, outbreak response team or two um, and typically going all the way back to John Snow and Broad Street Pump you were saying how about how people had come in from outside mm. uh, and being been infected so in in traditional epidemiology there will be the idea that cases that are near each other in space and time are likely to be uh, linked through transmission and that's usually but not always the case uh, and if there has been movement of individuals whether uh, within a country or internationally, um, that can produce infections close to each other in space and time, but they're not actually linked to each other in terms of a, a, a close chain of transmission. Uh, and, and pathogen genomes are, have very powerful information about resolving that. Uh, and our work uh, was looking at the number of times that uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2 has been introduced into the UK from abroad, uh, particularly during the first wave in, in early summer. Um, and uh, there was some very interesting dynamics, both the number of introductions, which was at least 13, 1500, and almost certainly many more, but also the rate of, of uh, change of introductions changed over a matter of just a few weeks. And also the source countries of where introductions were coming from was very dynamic as well. And that was all information that I think pretty much only pathogen genome sequence data could could resolve. So I, I guess we're, we're already starting to sort of explore the, the new types of uh, information that these uh, new technologies um, can give us. Um, I mean, I, we, we're mostly talking about smartphone apps and, and pathogen genome sequencing. I think there's some more that are perhaps even more experimental that that haven't been fully utilized in this pandemic, but that could be really important in the future. Uh, and those are um, wastewater surveillance. So this is a genomic technology, but it's, it's used slightly different, actually being able to um, detect uh, and quantify the number of cases either in a region or a, uh, a building or a, uh, a district through looking at the presence of the virus in, in wastewater and sewage. Uh, and... and uh, secondly, um, some very interesting recent work on, on using smartwatches and fitness trackers as, as potential um, uh, measures of people's physiology. And in fact, you know, can those detect whether somebody is, is infected or not? Do you think these are, are potential tools for the future? Absolutely. Because, I mean, again, you know, the, the name of the game is, is speed. And, and just to, to sort of comment on your uh, on, on, on your really interesting finding about the, the number of introductions early on in the UK. I think we're now in a difficult situation, obviously economically and epidemiologically, where we just you know, obviously want to prevent um, uh, infections without, um, you know, but, but, but the economy needs to, to keep on going. But I think 
Well, what's really clear is that there was an opportunity early on to 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 take sort of take the economic shock for a short period of time um, uh, uh, in terms of of movement restrictions right at the start, not letting all of these chains of transmissions um, sort of sort of get founded um, uh, around the country and, and really use uh, what limited capacity there was to, to contain the first few outbreaks and then to build up the capacity. I mean, we've, there's been a lot of talk about control measures just delaying the epidemic, but that's kind of the whole point. If by delaying the epidemic, you know, you have the, you have the ability to, to, to increase capacity uh, and then actually open up things later. And I think economically and epidemiologically, you know, the, the, that early action is, is really, um, and, and, you know, it's not a theoretical argument because it's very clear that that's um, one of the signatures of, of the countries that have come out of, of, of this relatively well. Um, and again, that early notification, I mean, at the moment you see the pandemic starting, don't you, with, with a cluster of cases, essentially by the time you see the first super spread event. Uh, but you can imagine, um, you can imagine that that with sequencing, sequencing is is sort of uh, is very specific and it's it's very agnostic. So you can see very quickly, you know, if people come in with respiratory infections, if this if this looks unfamiliar, um, sequencing is now getting sort of cheap enough um, that it can be and it is being uh, worked into sort of standard diagnostic practices. And because it's rich in information, you know, it's quantitative. It tells you how much of the pathogen there is. It gives you something, some indication about what the best way to treat this particular case is, and so on. So I think there's lots of future there, and and wastewater surveillance as well. You know, again, it's anonymous and it allows you to count, you know, how many how many pathogens are circulating. Uh, the the wearables, um, um, you know, uh, again, it gives you that speed. So you could imagine, um, you could imagine uh, an indication. We probably don't all want to be testing for everything all of the time, but, it, but you can imagine an indication that would tell you, uh, yes, you should get tested. You know, um, and and anything uh, that allows um, allows you at the right time to get tested and then to to take appropriate action at a personal level in terms of. You know, um, managing your risk, not transmitting to your family members, not transmitting to, to people who are vulnerable, uh, and allows contact tracing to happen. So that people, you know, contact tracing is all about disseminating information so that people can take appropriate um, appropriate action and and and, and avert uh, infection spread. So so digital technologies, a tremendous way of disseminating that information and organizing that information. And the, the genetic technologies uh, really allow you to to differentiate uh, between the, the, the different uh, uh, pathogens uh, going on together. Thank you. And um, I mean, it comes back to our analogy of a race that no matter what the infrastructure for test, traced and, uh, and isolate is, uh, it's always going to have a finite capacity. Yeah. Uh, and with been able to build the capacity of that infrastructure through time. It was initially too small in the UK, mm -hmm. uh, and it was potentially greater in other countries um, before the pandemic occurred, which is why they were able to deal with, with things better. Um, and 
all of these technologies are, are, are helping us uh, increase our speed in, in this race and to try and keep up with the virus. And do they work synergistically? I mean, I'm looking towards a, a super optimistic future where actually some of these technologies start to link in with each other and, and their, their combination would be vastly more efficient than each on its own. Yes, I think so. I mean, as I think pathogen genomics, um, you know, will get linked into into routine diagnostics because um, I mean, it partly is is just to do with the, the the pricing. If you look, you know, if you look at the cost of a, a running a standard microbiology or infectious disease laboratory in a hospital, um, you know, the, the progress in sequencing. Um, just, just makes it competitive on price, and you just you just start stacking up all of the data that you can get from uh, from this 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 one sample. Um, uh, to me, it kind of seems inevitable that that things will will go in in that direction. Um, so just, just smart, smartphones are are the way as a patient. You know, um, they're the way. Uh, you get the information in a really usable manner. So if I if I get information, anonymous information, you know that you should test for for X or Y, um, that's very useful. Of course, you know not everybody has a smartphone. It's still in, we're in the age of apps, but there's still sort of a, a quarter of the population who who don't have a smartphone, um, and uh, uh, so you know this is it's a direction of travel but but we need we need multiple solutions and if you look in the case of covid you know smartphone technologies would not have would not have helped with with the care homes which account for for a very significant uh, fraction of the mortality so it's a, um uh, you know we we still need we still need um uh, care and infrastructure and so on uh, but um, in infectious disease control, to some extent, you, you never lose, right? Because if you're if you're staying, if you if you're preventing infections amongst you know people who are happy to use smartphones and apps, you're also preventing infections spreading out into the hospitals and then into the care homes. So um, because because we're so connected. Great. I, I was thinking of exploring a bit further the sort of distinction between. Um, metagenomic virus discovery uh, yeah. for for uh, new pathogens that we haven't seen before versus the kind of testing that we have now, which is very specific testing for a known disease that we're trying to track the spread of. I'm going to hold that and maybe come back to it later if we, if we have a bit more time, because we've talked there about... Um, the, the 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 best case scenario, the the synergistic effects of these different technologies, really enabling us both for this pandemic and for future pandemics uh, to to get ahead of transmission. Yeah. Um, but but the use of these technologies isn't without its own challenges, mm-hmm. and, and many of those challenges uh, do relate to people's concerns um, over uh, the use of some of the data that that they're generating. So, I mean. Can you explain, I have done to a certain extent, but in a bit more detail, how the privacy is maintained during these, uh, the use of these smartphone apps? Um, how would you um, uh, make somebody confident who is a little bit worried about using the app that it's, it, that it's, uh, it's a priv- privacy secure thing to do? 
Yeah, so the contact tracing apps that have um, been rolled out through the, the Google Apple operating system are um, converged on a privacy-first design, uh, and that meant that the you know the exchange when you have close proximity uh, um, events, so so the two of us you know uh, uh, sit next to each other and have a chat, we exchange uh, anonymous keys, um, and those keys are rotating, so they can never be traced back. Uh, and and they stay on your phone, and um, you know if I later get diagnosed, uh, the uh, the set of keys um, you know uh, get circulated, but essentially um, there's no central server, so essentially they get your phone checks up on the list of people um, who've who've been diagnosed, uh, the anonymous keys, uh, and um, you know it says oh. You know, uh, I was in contact with this key, and it notifies you, and that notification uh, doesn't doesn't go any further. Uh, similarly, the, the the NHS app has it does both contact tracing and outbreak investigation. So so it does outbreak investigation by um, um, encouraging people to to scan in a QR code where they go to a location where an outbreak might take place. Um, so that sort of uh, uh, a tool to prevent or to respond to super spreading events associated with particular locations. But those um, QR code scans, again, they're not uploaded anywhere. They stay on your phone. And, um, you know, uh, at the moment, to preserve privacy, uh, you can uh, delete those. But the contact tracers, the manual contact tracers, call, when they call you up, um, um, can ask you to, 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 to read off the locations from your QR code. And, and you're in control of that information. I mean, in the future, that could be simplified, but I think that the privacy need uh, was was um, uh, meant to 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 do that. And and I think you know, I'm the the the, the is is quite a complex issue because I think we do want to um, we do want to and we can live in a world uh, you know where we're not being surveyed all of the time uh, for for everything. And you could easily imagine. And there are already abuses of data uh, at the moment. You know, there are there are apps, non-governmental apps. There are private companies, you know, who who install, um, uh, you know, who who, who um, sorry, pull in data from 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 um, marketing apps um, and, and collect that data and collect a lot of data information about you that you may not be aware about. So so privacy is a really important issue, um, and. Uh, you know, the uh, in terms of governments, uh, we we don't want uh, you know a mass surveillance for everything, but we want good information to be collected selectively uh, for uh, in situations like emergencies. Um, you know, so so smartphone mobility uh, apps, uh, mobility data has been very useful when there are disasters, earthquakes, that kind of thing, and you can see you'd be quite happy if somebody was looking at your smartphone trace. If you were trapped in a building after an earthquake, um, and uh, you know, and, and similarly, you could argue that in pandemics there are certain types of data um, which would be which would be useful. But it was felt that this is um, you know the precedent here is to have gone for a, a privacy uh, first design. And I think I think you know the the the, the system that's been developed is is very effective in terms of. Uh, being able to make sure that that personalized information linked to, 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 to contacts and to outbreak situations gets to you. Um, 
but it does mean that so they being able to find out what type of contacts or uh, give rise to infection uh, is is not really within within the purview of this app. So, yeah. so compared to the shoe leather epidemiology, um, the, this is focused much more on function. But I think I, I you know. It, it, it's clearly a compromise, right, between yeah. uh, what the, the the technology could potentially do, and a lot of that potential isn't being met by the current apps. But that's a necessary compromise um, uh, in order to uh, ensure um, that people feel confident to use it, and and that we can still get the benefits of a reasonably high um, uh, take up. That's right. So that, com yeah, and I think you know that's the way it was designed, and I think it's a really good design uh, at this point in time in terms of being able to achieve that. It will be interesting to see in the future whether, um, in an inter-pandemic period, whether people's uh, socially, uh, as a society, and individually, people's views on on the the value of this data and and the risks to their data change. Uh, I mean, it, it's it's true enough to say that that considerably more personal data is used to to put a, an advert uh, selling you a, a car on a website than it is than it's being used to um, uh, uh, give you notifications through the smartphone tracing apps. Definitely, yeah. Um, uh, there isn't a, a great deal to touch on in, in terms of pathogen genomics. I think in terms of um, uh, patient privacy, because those genomes are generally uh, shared in an entirely anonymous way. Um, and just just to clarify, these are, are, are not genomes of the person who has been infected. It's the, the genome of just the infectious agent itself, which tends to be quite, quite small and, uh, and short. Um, I mean, there have been uh, instances where that kind of pathogen genomic information is used to try to answer whether a particular person has transmitted an infectious disease to another person. And here I'm thinking about the use of, uh, of pathogen genomic data, say in a criminal trial where somebody has been uh, uh, accused of deliberate infection, uh, often of HIV, but sometimes of other uh, pathogens, uh, of infecting somebody deliberately, which can be a, a criminal act. Um, so it, it's worth noting and, and I think there's a lot of work to be done both scientifically and ethically to to enable the best use of pathogen genome data whilst maintaining um, uh, the same kind of uh, privacy that we've been talking about. I agree and I think I mean that's also true in, in healthcare acquired infections I mean you can imagine um, you know um, is clearly useful. So, so you brought up the example of when you have two outbreaks in different parts of the hospital. Um, uh, you know, it, it's really important to, for the hospital infection control team to know whether they're the same outbreak uh, and there's some there's some way in which the pathogen is is going backwards and forwards in between these two locations in the hospital, or if they're two, uh, um, uh, or if they're two separate outbreaks, because then again you want to investigate. And you just want to make sure it doesn't happen again, or it doesn't spread to a, a, a third location. Um, but in a in an era of litigation, um, that's that's um, you know that that can be that can be quite a fraught investigation. Um, and but I think the I mean the underlying issue is that we need to essentially we need to enable um, if the, 
we need to enable the positive uses, which are the, the prevention, which are getting the information. Because on the other hand, you know, the kind of question as an epidemiologist, and I'm sure, sure you feel the same, people always ask me, you know, is the virus transmitted here? Is the virus transmitted there? You know, how safe is it to go to the supermarket? How safe is it to go to the pub? You know, how, you know should the schools be open? Should the schools be closed? Um, you know, uh, what about somebody jogging past me? Or, you know, there, there are all kinds of information. And it's the same, you know, when I'm working on HIV, people always want to know about, um, you know, is the virus transmitted in this way or in that way? And the way we, we answer those questions is by collecting data on transmissions that have happened and looking for the common pattern. And we try to do that. You know, obviously you can do it in well-designed studies, but those well-designed studies involve, you know, people um, um, undergoing their, 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 their daily life, as it were. And you have to collect the data so that you don't keep on reproducing the, the behaviors uh, or the patterns, uh, um, you know, and it can be very enabling because it was collecting data about schools, uh, which allowed us to see that by and large, uh, schools in the case of COVID were not going to be uh, the, uh, the major drivers uh, of the pandemic, despite the fact that you do have cases in schools and it can be distressing, and it, um, but that you don't get um, these explosive epidemics, so you might get another sort of similar, similar settings. We've seen much more uh, difficulty around university halls and, and, and involving older children and about and in workplaces where people are very close together doing um, uh, sort of factory work, uh, especially if, if it's sort of uh, within a, a confined uh, air situation. Yeah, it's interesting how transmission, it's a social, even an intimate act. It, yeah. it involves two people usually um, yeah. being close to each other and and scientifically uh it's really important that we're uh, people researching it are very cognizant of that and i think i think scientists working in in infectious disease have a lot to learn from people working in law and, and sociology and ethics to understand how we can get the right balance between getting the real utility uh, of information about transmission that you've just mentioned but also balancing that with with people's real real and genuine concerns um, yeah. about those, but those people close, really close connections. Want information. People really want the information. And people, you know, it's, it, it's the information that people always ask you again and again, and they're surprised that that information isn't, you know, isn't as precise as they want about the roots of transmission and isn't as plentiful um, uh, as they want. People want to know very early on, you know, how protective are masks to infecting other people and, and how much the masks um, protect you. And again, you have to study people going in their everyday life. So there's sort of three ways about uh, thinking about that. One is, uh, you know, um, you, you can have opt-in, opt-out. So some people opt in to, to sharing these data to a certain uh, fraction of people. Then you can think like with the contact tracing apps, there was a lot of progress made in terms of privacy-preserving algorithms. So wherever it's possible to do what you want, um, and to use algorithms. So, so for example, you know, your computation, the, the, the epidemiological question, where does transmission happen? It might be that I write or somebody else writes a piece of code, but that piece of code gets run on your phone. So the answer, the important answer, um, you know, never leaves your phone. The data never leaves your phone 
but the computation is a bit that travels around and that gradually builds up the statistical answer. Yeah. And then the third aspect is, is simply that there are some people who are health researchers who are governed by a code of conduct and who don't misuse your data because, you know, um, uh, they're not open data, they're sensitive data, just like clinical records are, you know. I, I, I think, uh, I mean, it's been an absolutely fascinating conversation. It's been wonderful talking with you, Christoph. Um, we could we could go on to, uh, I was going to ask you sort of what three things do we need to do to prevent the next pandemic? Perhaps we'll leave that for one of the uh, audience to pose as a question. Um, so thank you so much uh, for, that, for that fabulous conversation. And uh, let's take a look at um, some of the questions that have come in. So I am just starting to negotiate the um, the question window on this uh, broadcasting system. Um, okay, so we have a, uh, a question here with four upvotes uh, from none other than uh, Charles Godfrey, um, uh, director of the Oxford Martin School. Uh, and that question is, which technology uh, that will help cope with future disease challenges has been accelerated the most by COVID-19. And I guess I could add to that, which which needs the most acceleration for the next pandemic? Yeah, well, I guess we can both give an answer to that. I mean, clearly, one of the things that I, I take away from, from looking at the way things have progressed is that preparing in advance, um, you know, is really useful. And the, the speed of the of the vaccine uh, uh, development um, didn't come from nowhere. The vaccines that were developed were developed. I mean, so that was the most uh, impressive story so far, uh, for sure. Uh, and but it was built on on twenty years of planning. You know, the the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness was, you know, um, uh, and Gavi and so on. International organisations had looked. Uh, and and uh, convince governments to donate large amounts of money with with great foresight uh, into into generic platforms and the the vaccines the Oxford vaccines the Moderna the mRNA vaccines um, these were vaccines which were, had been explicitly uh, designed uh, for 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 a pandemic situation and they've worked so it's very tremendous uh, but still um, you know uh, if we could if we could not experience what we've experienced this past year while waiting for the vaccine, that would be good. Uh, I think digital technology in all its forms, including uh, contact tracing, really has come forward. And I'm pretty sure that, you know, um, we're now in a situation where, where something could be deployed um, that, that was really good, could be deployed right at the start of an outbreak with, with very applicable um, sort of tools that, that really would make a difference. And I think rapid point of care testing um, um, you know, involving uh, sequencing. So, so, so on the, the technologies side, in, in in my group and 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 together with with uh, colleagues, uh, we we're sort of working on um, um, getting those rapid point of care tests. So, so we've been working on this in the context of HIV, but the platforms are, are very general. So we do that rapid test from from a, 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 a saliva sample or a blood sample. Uh, and, and a very small, um, very small sample, uh, uh, and you get a, a result, a preliminary result there and then, and you go and confirm it by by doing sequencing. So, so rapid point of care testing, immediate dissemination of 
the information across the risk network, uh, you know, through through outbreak analysis, uh, through outbreak information and contact tracing. Um, um, I, I imagine that could be done much more quickly in the future. Yeah, my my pick Definitely. for my my pick for the future would be, I think, the wastewater uh, surveillance. I mean, it is starting to be used now, but in in a in, in a um, still a fairly experimental way. But if we could get the infrastructure and the analytical capability to pretty much be screening uh, wastewater and other types of environmental samples, perhaps air. Uh, filtered uh, virus or bacteria um, from from large venues, uh, then we have the potential not only to quantify an outbreak better when it's when it's been uh, detected, but also to to detect a new pathogen that emerges in humans right at the very beginning of an outbreak when there perhaps are only ten, twenty, or a hundred people infected. And to, as we know speed of response is everything and uh, to, to nip uh, to nip an epidemic in the bud yeah no, i agree i mean that sounds that sounds uh, uh phenomenal um huge huge technical challenges both both in terms of basic science and in terms of operational research i mean everything from the amount of rainfall uh, the uh, the water flow in the sewers fatbergs and everything comes into whether the the numbers you get out are reliable or not I mean, I guess the other question we're, we're going to, you know, um, figure out over the next few years is sort of predicting uh, out of, um, you know, the, the, the multitudes of, of viruses and bacteria, most of which are entirely harmless, you know, what are the things that have a, a, a pandemic potential? Because, I mean, I think a, a size like coronavirus didn't, um, you know, uh, was a reasonably plausible um, high-risk high pathogen. I mean, the MERS coronavirus is not that distantly related and has been sort of regarded as possibly the, the, the number one threat, you know, uh, globally. So, so we can probably make quite... Do you think we can make quite a good job in terms of, of, of knowing what we're looking for as well when we're looking... So, so there's a really interesting academic debate happening right now in terms of whether it is... Uh, valuable to invest large sums of money in um, attempting to identify and discover all of the viruses that are out there in other species and in the yeah. environment and to get some information about them before they potentially jump into humans. I mean, uh, the, other, the other thing I like about your wastewater proposal, I mean, I don't, shoe le there's always going to be a role for shoe leather epidemiology, well targeted. I mean, the sort of human investigator you know, coming relatively agnostically, um, wearing their wearing out their shoes because they're walking everywhere and, and writing on their notepad. But the more information they have coming in, and the more they know where to look, and the more they get to look early on, the better job they can do. So, so there's kind of tremendous synergies. And again, if you imagine, you know, you're you've got a new virus, and you've got your waste. You look at your wastewater nationally, uh, and and you know you've. You've, you've been looking at an outbreak in Southampton, and suddenly you see the same the same uh, virus in the waste wastewater, you know, appearing in the north of the country in a in a specific location. Um, your yeah. epidemiologist will will be looking in the right place. You know, we have this vision of, of of a center with you know big big computer screens on it, flashing up sort of uh, warning new virus reported in in uh, in Cardiff. 
say. Yeah. Uh, and then, but uh, of course, that's just in Hollywood movies. But um, you know, that that would be the kind of thing that uh, it would be nice to have before the next pandemic. Let's let's uh, take a look at some of these other questions. Um, this one from Donna Seymour. Uh, which reads, you mentioned contamination uh, of surfaces in the Chinese food market. Do you think that was the main mode of transmission or, or airborne transmission? So I guess this is related to some, uh, so, some uh, recent discussion of whether the virus can be uh, transmitted to a region like China, which has effectively eradicated it yeah. and initiate a new chain of transmission, not through infected travelers, but through... Um, but through products, particularly those that, that have been uh, frozen or in, in the cold chain? So my understanding is that in this particular outbreak, it was environmental surfaces, and the virus was recovered in environmental surfaces in different locations in the market. But in the epidemic, more generally, uh, sort of airborne and direct droplet transmission has been the most prominent uh, form of uh, transmission. I mean, it's worth noting that we've closed down a lot of the opportunities uh, for the super spreader. So this sort of, um, at, at the moment, the, the sort of degree of um, what, what transmission we see sort of reflects a little bit the, the measures in place. In large parts of the world, big gatherings, you know, are not allowed and are not happening uh, and, uh, and so on. But, but at this point in time, uh, the, the main form of transmission is... is uh, airborne and direct, um, and, and again, the importance of, of social distancing and, and masks. And again, I don't see these things as contradictory. I think a lot of well-designed uh, digital data and pathogen data would be very helpful in the context of studies to, to better understand uh, the, the effectiveness of masks. Again, if you're looking at the effectiveness of masks, being able to ask whether two cases are linked or not within a study, using pathogen uh, genomes would be an essential tool. We've seen, you know, we've seen that in the case of HIV uh, to prove the effectiveness of condoms, to prove the effectiveness of antiretroviral therapy, pathogen sequencing to say these two people uh, definitely di didn't, um, you know, uh, weren't linked by transmission makes those studies much more powerful. That's great. Um, I am just uh, scrolling uh through the questions. Are you able to see the questions? Are there any that... Yeah, there's one that's got lots of votes about uh, surveillance and privacy. Okay. Um, do, um, I haven't found that one. Do you want to read it out? How do you navigate people's concerns of surveillance? Certain countries that have been successful with contact tracing have more explicit surveillance of its peoples but in the US and probably much of Europe, individuals are very forthright about privacy. How should people feel about these technologies and privacy? We kind of discussed it a little bit, but um, I think I think there are ways of, of um, there is a challenge for the scientific community to, to find ways of, of, of doing the prevention we want and getting the generalizable inf information we want without uh, invading people's privacies, because people are also very forthright that they want the data, they want the information, they want to know, is the school risky? Is my school risky? You know, people say, you know, it's quite interesting, I find it quite interesting. People, on the one hand, want privacy and need privacy, and I've, you know, I'm a great fan of George Orwell. I, I don't want to live in a, in a, in a surveillance totalitarian society. That's very important if you're thinking about the future to me. But on the other hand, you know, um, 
if, if there's an outbreak in, in a local school, people really want to know the information. Was my child playing with the, you know, and, and, and so on and so forth. So, um, uh, uh, and there, there's a balance in between those two things. Um, but one of the really interesting things I think going forwards I've seen is, is algorithmically, um, so, so one way is to sort of explicitly regulate that balance, the same way we regulate whenever, you know, whenever in human rights you have, um, you know, the, you always have trade-offs. So you can explicitly ne negotiate that trade-off, but, but also there are algorithmic uh, ways of actually um, sort of getting your cake and eating it, so getting yeah. privacy and getting the information. Uh, it's worth noting that the apps in different countries are very different. Yeah. That, that some of those uh, apps that have been used, particularly in East Asia, are, are storing and retaining very different kinds of data to the ones that um, are being used in Europe. And um, has there been any discussion of, 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 of sort of data sunsetting? So the idea that data that is kept... Uh, or is used for the purposes of gaining information during an outbreak would have algorithmically at the, at the software level some kind of um, uh, fixed lifespan and would disappear after it's effectively not useful. Uh, so there is very active uh, discussion about uh, sunsetting. Uh, I think to some extent the, the, um, um, the resolution with these particular contact tracing apps has been to go towards privacy, so not collecting the information in the first place, um, you know, as, as being even better than uh, sunsetting it in terms of privacy. Uh, but I think, again, that's not um, straightforward because um, you have to, there's some information that, you know, you want to keep because you're, you're helping the next group of people that maybe probably will be us or as you know, uh, involve many of the uh, many of us because the next pandemic, um, um, you know, won't be that long into the future. I think I don't know what you know what your opinion is. So um, th that that discussion um, uh, requires uh, requires quite careful thought. And I think I think the key thing is that people want to know that the process is relatively transparent and and you know and properly overseen. By, by you know members of the public, by ethicists, uh, and so on. And I think if we can have a sort of mature discussion around the value of these data and why they're sensitive and who they're valuable for and what, how they can be misused and, and what we can do to stop that from happening, then um, uh, you know uh, a consensus can be reached. Uh, yeah, um, I. I wholeheartedly agree and uh, we'll take that as an opportunity to wrap up the proceedings of our conversation. Uh, let me just thank you again, Christoph, for uh, an enlightening and fascinating talk. I'd like to thank uh, all of the audience uh, for, for watching and listening. Thank you for joining us. Uh, and special thanks to those of you that provided some uh, questions at the end. Uh, I'm sorry we weren't able to get through uh, all of them today. Uh, I hope you can find some answers to some of those questions uh, uh, in the near future. Uh, and I have one final announcement uh, before we disappear, uh, and that is to announce uh, the final talk uh, in this series uh, of conversations, uh, which is uh, with Professor Julian Savalescu and Dr. Sam Vanderslot.
uh, and they'll be in conversation on Thursday, the 3rd of December at 5 p.m. And they will be talking about mandatory COVID-19 vaccination, the arguments for and against. And if you want to register for that event, please uh, press the green button at the bottom of the screen uh, that says next event in the series. Um, so again, all that's left is for me to thank Christoph. Uh, thanks everyone for listening and I hope you all have a, uh, a great evening. Goodbye. Thank you.